going to be preaching out of uh, and teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is one of my favorite passages in the entire book of Deuteronomy. I say that every week, but it's true. And so this one, uh, let's look at it. We're actually going to go all the way through 20, Deuteronomy chapter 8, the full chapter. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. And he brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble you and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, The Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. And that's the end of our reading in Deuteronomy. The title of our message is Rigors and Riches. This entire chapter is set out to discuss and describe the rigors of the wilderness and all that we've been through thus far and the riches that are coming to us as we enter into this new beautiful land. And so it starts right away with much of what Pastor Kevin was preaching on last week with like obey or hear God or die, right? Be careful, follow all the commands because if you do so, you'll live. Like listen to God, hear, obey God's commands and you have life. Or if you don't, you will have death. 
this is what God has promised, right? This is what will happen. What's happening to the nations that are going to get kicked out will happen to us if we don't obey God. And this little beginning at the very front end of Deuteronomy 8 is very much like that land vassal contract that would come out in the Near Eastern context. Here's what God is promising us, but there are some requirements on our end of the contract in order to take possession of this beautiful land. So then again, this theme of Moses, remember, don't forget, you were humbled and tested in order to know what was in your heart. And at this point, we think, but who, why, who needed to know? Did we need to know what was in our heart? Did God need to know what was in our heart? And the answer is both. In the ancient Near East, there wasn't a view of the Israelite God being all-knowing and stepping outside of time. Like, yes, God is all-knowing, and that's mentioned in our text. But there was also this understanding that God limited God's own knowledge for the moment of interaction with humanity. Right? Like when he says to Adam and Eve after they've eaten the fruit and are hiding in the garden, where are you? Right? He's God. Of course, God knows where they are. But God sort of limits God's knowledge for the accessibility of a human conversation. So God's going to test God's people and want to figure out, like, what are you made of? Can you really follow only me? And he explains this in this nice passage. Like, I'm going to feed you manna, which neither you nor your ancestors should know, to teach you that you're not going to survive on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you've read the New Testament, that you remember that Jesus himself was tempted with this same test in Matthew chapter 4 when The evil one, cursed be he, leads Jesus out into the wilderness and says, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, and he quotes this verse. No, because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from mouth of God. So he doesn't fall into that temptation. Now, this really weird, interesting thing, we also needed to know, not just did God need to know who we were going to be, we needed to find out what kind of person we were going to be. And Kevin long ago did this fantastic message on what it means to face a test with God, that it's not so much to cause you a trial, but more like a test drive of a car, that you take the vehicle out on the road to see what it can do. So part of our test in this process is like, what, what, what happens to us when we truly trust trust God to provide something that we've never seen before. And the word manna in Hebrew literally is, what is it? It's a whatchamacallit. Like that's actually the JPS uh, Jewish Publication Society translates manna as whatchamacallit. Uh, that it is something people have never seen before. They don't know what it is. It's why whenever you try to like search online, like you Google it, where, what is manna? You don't find a good answer, right? You might find somebody to say it's absolutely this, but then there's a whole bunch of other people like that we don't know. It's not that thing. We can't understand what it is. Is it something off the little duts? The tamarisk tree blooms, and, and when it blooms, there's this tiny little insect that comes, and there's a secretion off the tamarisk tree, and it can kind of, you know, secrete and then turn into sort of like a little bit hard sweetness. And so kind of like they call it, it's like a honeydew or something weird, and it's very small, and it falls down, and is that it? I don't, I don't know. We don't know what it is. We know that the Israelites also could not identify it because they called it the what is it bread, right? I mean, like if I was like, I will serve you tonight and here's the title of my, my entree, what is it? You would say, I think is our side dish, right? Like if you don't know what that is, I'm not sure I want to eat it, but it was called the what is it bread. And all of this, whatchamacallit bread that they're eating is given to them only while they're in the wilderness, This provision of God will not continue when they get into the land. And God knows this, and God's talking to them about it. And he continues to talk about these miraculous miraculous things that happened in the wilderness, right? 
Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. We were on a tour, and Melissa Look was in that tour, and she said to me that REI had never, ever tested their clothing in Israel because if they did, they would not be able to make the promises of their clothing because shoes do wear out. And every tour we've led, somebody's hiking boots lose their sole right, right within day two or three, including mine the last time around. So we always carry duct tape and put those on. Somebody's, it's just, it's a rough place to walk and to survive. So when God says to them, your shoes didn't wear out, your clothes didn't wear out, your feet didn't swell, like these things lasted for you, that is miraculous. Which by the way, what kind of clothing were they wearing? We don't know exactly, but up here in this corner, we have a picture of King Yehu, an Israelite king bowing down um, and after he's been taken captive. So some sort of clothing like that, right? Something Casual, something sort of not really uh, necessarily desert SPF 50, yeah? All of the stuff we would hope to have with us if we were walking in the desert for some time. And then God gives them fatherly parent language for this, right? Um, That just as you've seen somebody who's trying to raise their son, I'm trying to raise you that way too. I'm trying to, and the word for discipline is the same as like disciple, right? I'm trying to raise you up. I'm trying to disciple you. And part of that means that you need to observe all these commands because I'm bringing you into a good land. Now, for those of you who've never been with us to Israel or who have thought about it or went recently and you've forgotten all about it, let me just give you a little bit of a snippet of what God is describing here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and the hills. And you know what? When you go there, sure enough, sure enough, the vast portion of Israel is made out of Cenomanian limestone, and that limestone holds water really well. So aquifers can be dug down and you can terrace your hillside so that you can have crops that grow. It's not going to be anything like the wilderness and the desert that they've been wandering in. It's not the same stone. It's not the same climate. They're going to be able to go into this land and all of a sudden have water at their fingertips, not where they're thirsting and having to beg Moses to get water out of the rock for them. But instead, it's going to be right there. Now, it's not to say that there aren't places in the larger land that's promised Israel where water is more scarce. There certainly are. But it is beautiful and lush and amazing. Now, Exodus even calls this the land of milk and honey, which if you watched VeggieTales, they always call it like sounds sticky, right? Um, And it does. But why is that description also there? It's not right here in Deuteronomy 8. But as we're talking about describing the land, let's lean into it for a moment. Uh, Kevin wanted to title this message, Ooze. Um, So like all of this like milk and honey that is coming out of this land. Well, where do we get milk from? Yeah, that guide, goats and sheep, right? Primarily, maybe later on, we get them from cows. Most of us don't drink goat milk or sheep milk. But in, in this day, goats and sheep are going to give you wonderful milk. But where does the honey come from? Is it just like there's an abundance of honeybees everywhere? The honey could also describe the fig honey and the date honey that's coming out of the date tree and the fig tree. Why this weird image? If you'll recall, the first conflict and murder that happened in the Bible was between Cain and Abel, a shepherd and a farmer. And that conflict occurs right away, right? And there's maybe we can all discuss the varying reasons behind that conflict or what happened or Cain was just having a bad day or whatever it was. 
But that conflict between shepherd and farmer persisted. Where do the sheep eat? And how are we going to protect our crops when the sheep come through? Like this, I'm going to come in. If I'm a farmer, I have land that I stay with. And I take and protect that land. And these shepherds just come roaming through, like without a care in the world. And they just let their sheep and goats do whatever they're going to do, wherever they are. And then we're going to have to handle how they're going to eat our crops, all that stuff. Perhaps the blessing of having a land that is full of milk and honey is there's plenty for everyone. It's full of, it's enough space, it's big enough and good enough and spacious enough where the shepherd can live and the farmer. So there's a, I'm sending to a place where there's some peace. There's places for you both here without that conflict. As Deuteronomy then continues, it says that it's going to be a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees. These are grape vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. That honey, again, is from the date, the date palm, olive oil from the olive, and pomegranates. Now, these have come to be called the seven species. That when God sends us into the promised land, that he promises that there will be seven species or varieties of plants that can live and sustain in this area. And these things are beautiful and amazing and incredible, and we need them. Guess who can't grow olives? Egypt. Too hot. And yet you really need olive oil. You need it to anoint. You need it for your lamps, all of that stuff. So Israel is a place where olives can grow. And it is a picture. Anyone have ideas of what the olive tree might symbolize as we look into this land of what God is giving God's people? Light. Yeah. And life. It could be life too, but it's light for sure. You get light from the oil lamps of the olive tree. And if you look out if you guys go out when we're having all seven species are here in this yard. So when you go out in just a moment, they're in my yard too, except for the wheat and barley. It's an off season. Um, you come out and I'll show you when, a, when you see the wind blow through the olive tree, you'll see the shimmer of those leaves. And it starts to look like light is blowing through. The olive tree comes to symbolize Israel. And the apostle Paul will use that symbol as he talks about Israel and Romans, right? The olive tree is a symbol of light and it is a symbol of Israel's endurance. If you chop down an olive tree at the, at the, right in the trunk, it'll still grow shoots up around. It still survives, and that imagery is in Psalms. So all of that stuff that's beautiful, it costs, it's like peace. Remember, the dove has the olive branch in its mouth. All of that. All of that, right? Um, it's also quite delicious if you're going to have all these things. Yeah, And the Messiah and anointing and all so many goodness things. The date palm. Date trees were known as the righteous trees. Tamar, do you guys remember Tamar? She is called righteous. That's what the word is in Hebrew for date, Tamar. And even she will be talked about as being like righteous. There will be a righteous Tamar, righteous tree in Solomon's temple. So we have righteousness in this beautiful date palm. With the figs, we have a picture of leadership. Any wonder why then as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree that has not produced fruit, he's like, shrivel. That is not just about, I have power over really cool trees. It is an, it's a judgment on the leadership. It's a symbol of leadership in that space. Grapes, that grapevine, that's just God's great blessing on you, right? He could just give us water, but he's given us juice and wine too. And this is always seen as a blessing unless you drink too much and then it's naked and ashamed really quick. So mostly grapevine blessing. 
everyone sitting under their own vine and fig tree. This is part of the promise as we enter into the land. Pomegranate fertility, just amazing, beautiful. Like when you go in, you will be prosperous. Remember God's first command about Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. That's going to be echoed here in this whole passage. And you will have pomegranates. Just if you've opened a pomegranate, how many seeds do you see? Uh, it's just so many, right? Fertility. In fact, when we were, I love pomegranates and, and I loved the symbol and I think it's really beautiful and it's something that's very common in Israel to sort of bestow upon your loved one. So I asked for Kevin for one year for my birthday to give me a pomegranate for Israel. So he gave us beautiful, went to great lengths, had friends searching in the old city, found this beautiful pomegranate necklace that came. And I was wearing it in Israel and I met an archaeologist and we were sitting there talking and he said, you know, you got a fertility symbol hanging around your neck. I'm like, I know. <laughs> that was pretty. So, there you go. <laughs> That's, but that part, I mean, it's a good blessing to have. And then back to wheat and barley. So these are things that get planted right after the rainy season in the fall. And then you have to wait and beg God to have enough of the right everything. Enough rain, not too much. Enough sun, not too much. So that around this time of year, just as was celebrated last week for Shavuot, for Pentecost, that we have the feast of, of wheat and barley, and we bring in that beautiful ingathering of fruits of the summer. These species, these seven varieties, they last all year round for Israel. Some come in the late summer, some come in the fall, some come in the spring. When God gives Israel these seven species, it's not only like, hey, you'll be able to have a really nice spread, right? It is promises of what type of people they will be in the land and what people can encounter when they come to Israel and how they find life there in that place. This will be a land where bread will not be scarce. Isn't that good news after we've been eating the whatchamacallit for 40 years? Every morning and every night, and don't, don't collect too much. And if you collect too much, it's going to go rotten and bad. But here in this place, bread will not be scarce. Well, how do you make bread? Back to that wheat and barley. What do you need for wheat and barley? You need rain. Those won't be watered from the aquifers and the springs. Those have to come directly from the hand of God. You and I can't do anything to get this. This is a land where we're going to have to depend on God. And yet God is giving it to us in such a beautiful, bountiful, incredible way. He's like, you're going to just get this stuff in many ways. And when we get that grain, that's deeply important. Because if we don't have that, nothing works. If we don't have that wheat and barley then nothing works. Nothing's growing out of the ground. Our crops look like this, which means the sheep and the goats can't eat, which means that then they can't provide for us the wool that we need in order to make our tents, in order to make our clothing. It means that if there's a drought in the area, we don't survive and our animals don't survive and we're all hungry and houseless if we're still in those tents. But God says in this place, the bread won't be scarce. This is a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And guess what? You can. Down in Timna towards a lot in the south, southern part of Israel, they have found copper mines dating back to the time of Solomon and before. That The Egyptians were here. The Midianites were here. The Edomites were here. They were digging copper, oftentimes with slaves, out of these hills. And you can still go today and walk around and just start to dig a little bit and pick up. Rocks that have that coppery look right away. Grab a little bit of copper while you're there. God sends them to a land where this is there and readily apparent. And then he says this, when you have eaten and are satisfied, bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Don't let that word bless confuse you. It is the word bless in the Hebrew. And as we've talked about before, when we did our like 
you keep using that word hashtag blessed series, that this means more like thank, right? Thank God. Give God glory and honor for those things. But notice, everybody, when are you supposed to do this? After you've eaten. Anybody in the room do that? We typically say grace before we eat, right? And when we say it, it's very much things like, Lord, bless this food, and we ask God to bless the food. We never, we rarely bless God for the food, right? We ask God to bless the food. The Israelite tradition is like, God gave you the food. You've already been blessed. Like that's, now just say thank you. And do it, yeah, before you eat, there's now a tradition for that too, but the only time the Bible tells us and directs us to have any prayer in the, in the Hebrew scriptures regarding food, it's after we've eaten and we're satisfied. Like when you're sitting and you're pushing back from the meal and going, oh, it was good. It's not a time to stop and just enjoy the satisfaction of the meal. That's when we stop and we say thanks. Now, Jesus also keeps then the rabbinic tradition of blessing God for the bread before he breaks it and eats it. And we see that in the Gospels. But that's a rabbinic tradition. That's not a tradition that we find particularly commanded in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's only here in this, in this verse. So then God continues on, right? Be careful. Don't forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, decrees I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you're satisfied and you build houses and settle down. Now, this is what's going to happen. Israel's been living in tents for 40 years. They know how to do the tent thing. But when they come into this new land, they're going to start to build houses, which is why ultimately God will get a house too, the temple in Jerusalem. Because if we live in tents, God lives in tents, just much nicer. And if we live in houses, now God's going to live in a house, just much nicer, right? And instead of being a community that moves around following just the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night, now we're going to be a community that moves in and settles. And can you already start to hear what God's great concern is with that? When your herds grow large, your flocks are large, your silver and gold increase, and you've multiplied, you're going to become proud in your heart. And you're going to forget the God who brought you up out of Egypt, land of slavery. You're going to settle. And you're going to be there. And you're going to have all of these blessings that I'm giving you, these wonderful good things. And you're going to forget. You're going to forget everything that you've been through for the last 40 years. You're going to forget that God led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that that thirsty and waterless land. You hear the opposite, right? The opposite of the land God is sending us to. You're going to forget venomous snakes and scorpions. You're going to forget that God brought you water out of the rock. You're going to forget the what is it. You're not going to be able to cook with it anymore. It's going to be gone. Your, your ancestors didn't know it, but you're going to forget it too. And you're going to say to yourself, as you sit and I sit in our beautiful homes here in Silicon Valley, I mean in Jerusalem and in the promised land, and we sit in our homes and we are thankful maybe for what we have, and we kind of sit back and we push back and we're we're going to forget and we're going to say, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But God says, no, it's not you. It's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's the Lord who so confirms his covenant with you, which swore 
to swore to your ancestors has gotten you to this place in the first place. And by the way, if you ever forget, you're going to get kicked out too. So this welcome to the Thunderdome moment, like wilderness versus promised land, what are the differences? Like this was rigorous and this is going to be full of riches. But the deep concern is that these miraculous provisions that you had in the wilderness, the manna, the water from the rock, the clothes that didn't wear out, the feet that didn't swell, that life is going to get easy and you're not going to have to worry about those things anymore. You're going to get up and you're going to get dressed. It's all going to be easy again. But Israel's experience, experience in the wilderness, Israel's experience in the wilderness showed dependence on God for sustenance is essential rather than just solely on natural resources. Like when we were in the wilderness, we had to depend on God for everything. But in the promised land, Israel's no longer going to have to overcome the same hardships that made dependence on God so clear. They're not going to have to beg for God to give that manna every morning and every night. They're going to be able to go out themselves and get it. You tell me, under which of these two circumstances are you more likely to stop and thank God for a glass of water? You and I, we have it so easy. We just walk up to the faucet and we turn it on and water comes out. And that's not true of our brothers and sisters who live in Flint. It's not true of our brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world or the U.S., but it's true right here where we are. We walk up. You might have a Brita filter, and you might like the taste of it better, but none of that water that comes out of that faucet is going to hurt you. And when we walk up there, we just turn on the faucet, and we put the cup underneath. I do it too, and I drink, and I never say thank you. But if I were in this situation, thirsty in the desert, and came upon a canteen with a little bit of water, you can bet that in that circumstance, I'd be thanking God for that canteen that was laid out. And, of course, it is in our text that if we see somebody thirsty, we're to give them something to drink. And that is our religious obligation. Apropos of nothing. Okay, so when life gets easy, how do we remember? Because when it's easy, it's so easy to forget to give thanks. The Bible is so focused on this that this entire paragraph is in a chiastic structure. I don't know if you guys recognize this, but let me show you how it works here. That it starts and goes into a focal point that it wants you to focus on. So the first part of the structure of A at the very beginning of the chapter is observe the commandments and prosper, which we'll see repeated then at the very end of the chapter. Remember and don't forget. And then where the letter B is, you see it right here? The wilderness and the manna, verses 2 through 4. And that the letter B, it's towards the end. Wilderness and manna, verses 15 and 16. And here's what, here's what God wants us to focus on right in the center. Observe the commandments in prosperity and do not forget the Lord in prosperity. Keep being obedient even when everything's working. Right? You don't have to, your obedience to God is not what gets you something. God is blessing us with this thing. God is giving it to us regardless, right? Like we, we have to remember that when we're in prosperity, we are going to maintain our obedience. Have you ever found that like, I really want God to do this thing 
I've heard people talk like this so often. I really want God to do this thing for me, so I'm going to pray extra hard, or I'll go give so much more money to the poor, or I thought for sure that God would do this for me because I sacrificed all these other things, and it's sort of some weird exchange. Here God is just saying, whether you're in the wilderness or whether you're in prosperity, you're supposed to obey me, and please don't forget the Lord. It's going to happen. And awareness of God and obedience to God are not separate phenomenons. We like to think that these things too are both divided somehow. That I can obey God and I can be aware of God, but I, I don't have to do both. No, in the Bible you have to do both. Because the commandments are the practical expression of our awareness of God. And then they also serve to foster our awareness, right? Like right now, if all of us in this room think, God commanded in Deuteronomy 8 that after I eat and I'm satisfied to thank him, then that command, if we just kept that command it certainly would also foster an awareness for us, wouldn't it? Because if every time we're sitting around with somebody, we're like, I'm sorry, just I had a really good meal, now I have to stop and thank God, we would all become more aware of God in that moment. God is warning us not of hardships, but of prosperity. The warning is not that something's going to be difficult, it's that it's going to be too easy. And that when it's too easy, we will say, I did it. This is all because of me. I pulled up my own bootstraps. I deserve all this success. I worked harder than everybody else. I'm the one that got the education. I'm the one that sacrificed all those things. I got the good grades. I worked hard. I got the dream. It's mine. And the Bible here is very clear. No, God gave you the ability to do it in the first place. God gave you the mind. God gave you the resources. God gave you the parents or the family structure or the scholarship that were able to get you there. God gave you every single effort. God gave that doctor the the willingness to go through that education, to have the wisdom in this moment, to give you the right medicine so that you would be healed. God did that. God does all of it. And when we get there, we are going to forget. We're going to look at all these other things and forget that what sits behind our comfort and our prosperity and what sits behind the ability to just turn on the faucet and have clean water come out, what sits behind all of that is the provision of God. And that God is deserving of our obedience. He deserves our remembrance of that, our obedience of it. And he deserves our thanks. I love this chapter because the blessings are so good and, and the land is so beautiful. And it's such an incredible place still today where it's crazy and, and a mess and also incredible and a place where dependence on God is still somehow required in the midst of all those blessings. And all of that is wonderful. But I love this chapter because it's warning me about my own daily life. It's warning me about my comfort. It's warning me about my prosperity. It's warning me that when I get into that place, I'm going to forget. And I'm going to think it's all me. And I'm going to forget to give God that glory. So my prayer for us today, with all of our rigors and all of our riches, whether we are in the wilderness right now and we are just depending on God to protect us from scorpions and give us some manna and give us that water from the rock or whether we're in the promised land where things are a little bit easier and a little bit more comfortable and the water just comes and it's beautiful and it's a little bit more safe. Wherever we are, my prayer in rigor or in richness that we will give thanks. And if you and I have been given much in this moment, then let's extend that out. Make our thankfulness, our worship to God, be that which extends to our neighbor 
and says, I love you and I will give you something to drink. What I've been given, I will share because it's not mine anyway. This next month, we're going to be moving into a Jesus economics series. And I think that some of this framing is really important for us to keep in mind as we go. That the, the warning we receive from God is not about being in poverty. God is certain that when we are in rigor, when things are difficult, when we are impoverished, that we will pray. God is worried about us in this room that when we have prosperity and when things are easier, that we'll forget him and we'll think we did it ourselves. And that sure is my tendency. And my prayer is that we'll turn every good thing that we have back to praise towards him. And we'll seek to find every good gift we've been given and use it to bring more of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That we will find every opportunity to extend to those in need and in want in our community, close and far. That we will find all of the ways to say, this isn't mine anyway. And I will turn it back to you, Lord. And I will give thanks to you for it, Lord. And pray that you continue to find a way to bless each one of us to grow closer to to who Jesus is and how his kingdom can work here on heaven. So join us together at the table that is open to all. For if anyone is thirsty, they can come. And if anyone is hungry, they can come. All of us, this table of Christ is open to all. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Come to the table. Everything is waiting. Sparkers, to all of you who have now entered or are entering into a land full of milk and honey, may we all together lift up our hearts and our minds and our souls to the Lord for his greatness and his goodness so that we can be reminded once again that it was not by our own hands, not by our own wisdom, but only by his love and his grace and his provision. And as we partake in a wonderful meal together, a meal that we did not prepare, a meal that we did not sacrifice for, after we have eaten and had our fill, may we too once again lift up our hearts to say thanks and to remember the Lord and his provision for all of us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.